Hi, John. How's it going, Tark? Hi, Dylan. Hey, Tark and John. How's it going? We've got a guest. There are three people on this podcast. This is we're, we're early on in the iteration of iterate, and we've already jumped into having guests. So this is like we'll see how it goes. Like we got, I, did we get really lucky with Lex? I thought. You know what's interesting because because I always thought we would get guests once we have like a really good rhythm, and I, I don't know if we're at that rhythm exactly yet, but. You know, the reason I'm excited about having guests is because of the real world aspect of talking about product building. I mean, it's one thing to talk about processes and theories and things that you and I have been through, but it's almost felt natural to now have guests so that, you know, we get more of that nuance. And perspective. Like Dylan's going to bring a completely different perspective, hopefully. So Dylan is joining us from HubSpot. Dylan, why don't we have you introduce yourself? Because I always find introductions of other people really... I don't know, off-putting. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Tarek. My name is Dylan. I'm a product manager on the HubSpot CRM. So we are the team at the core of HubSpot's product development. Uh, I've been here for a few years now, uh, and I'm really excited to, to join you guys on the show. Awesome. Yeah, HubSpot, great company. Super happy to have you here doing really interesting stuff. Yeah, I mean, especially kind of with your IPO a few years ago, you guys have grown like crazy. Like, wh- when did you join Dylan? Like, was that... Did you see that culture of kind of that explosive growth? Were you kind of there? Yeah, it's it's been incredible. I mean, the growth hasn't stopped. Anytime somebody has joined HubSpot uh, up until last week, they've felt uh, this kind of growth from the product org to services to sales. Uh, when I joined in 2016, we were just over 1,000 employees, and we've since doubled uh, wow. in that time. Oh, that's uh, mind-blowing. It's been insane. Yeah, It, ha- it really has been. Well, I think that's a good segue to talk about how messy things can get then when when you do scale that that quickly um, and all those relationships. Now, before we start, I will have to say I've interviewed a bunch of people from HubSpot because they're customers of ours at Amplitude. I've done a bunch of user research on them. And in the past, I've asked them, usually when we do user research at Amplitude, we offer kind of a small gift card for people's time. But the HubSpot people have consistently asked not for the gift card, but for Amplitude swag, they've wanted our Amplitude socks, the stickers, and I've, I've worked hard to try to get these to them. I wanted to ask you, do you see people at work with Amplitude? Like, are people just Amplitude branded there? Like, it, it seems like a hot commodity. It is. Socks are the hottest commodity around in tech swag, I think. They've eclipsed t-shirts. They've eclipsed stickers. Uh, I don't spend a lot of my time looking at people's socks. Um, so if you're sending those, uh, I've missed them, but there are amplitude t-shirts. I think I actually saw one this morning. Okay. Okay. That's good. As as a member of the marketing team, I I can, okay. Something, something's working there. I'm all of my, I, I, since I had a kid, I lose, it seems I I don't have any pairs of socks left. So all my tech socks are like orphan socks. Um, so they're awesome. So I have to pair companies I've worked with oh, on my feet at the same time. So like there'll be like a Zendesk thing and an Amplitude thing simultaneously, which Do which you is kind of pair them based on like complementary tech or like competitors to each other. Well, I don't know. It, it depends on the activity that I'm doing, <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. But but so I think yeah, socks have seemed to go a long way. It's um, funny you guys bring this up. I'm actually wearing a pair of slack socks right now, but they're the old logo. So I, I consider them retro slack socks, uh, which is ironic considering ooh. how long slack's been around that I have retro slack socks. Um, but they they are just the queens of the compliments. They they get them all the time. So it's amazing. 
Yeah, that's that's a <laughs> someone rare, from one of these companies product. that like provides all the the swag is going to just like tune into the episode and hear this part and just think it's all about socks. Well, well, Dylan, we're going to make sure you get amplitude socks. Yeah, I would love I think that. The, I think we're the best in the business, and I think uh, <laughs> I think you guys heard it here first. T-shirts, all those things are old socks. You start from the bottom, bottom up. Yeah, foundational. It's like it's like it's like communication. It's like our topic today. It's the foundation. That was a good segue. I'm going to give you props for, yeah. for so for so today's topic. Um, you know, we were just chatting amongst each other what would be interesting, and we really wanted to talk about cross team collaboration and why that's so hard. I think people have different reasons for why it can be hard. Maybe we can talk about things that can make it easier. And so when you guys, you know, Dylan, John, when you guys think about cross-team collaboration, what's the first thing that comes in your mind when, when somebody says that? For me, it's, it has to be communication. I think the most important thing and probably the hardest thing to do when it comes to cross-team collaboration is communication. Uh, we take for granted when we're working amongst our own team how easy it is to get a message across, sometimes without even saying anything. Uh, but when it's involving multiple teams across, you know, multiple different parts of, parts of a company, uh, that that is typically the first thing to fall down and, and sometimes the hardest thing to do. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to second that. It's so hard to get it right. It seems like sometimes the harder you try to get it right, the more, the more pitfalls you fall into. I had this great colleague uh, at Zendesk. And he would allocate one hour of prep time per person in a meeting, a cross-functional meeting, to prepare to communicate correctly. Oh, God. And, and you know, that's how hard, it, how hard it is. Like, he had to get it just right. And then, you know, so I thought about that and I thought, well, on one hand, that's great that he's trying to do all that stuff. But then I thought, wow, that, that is... That is a tough environment to have to be like that paranoid about it. Do you ever get paranoid, Tarek, when you're trying to communicate as a designer? Oh, absolutely. I think for me, the paranoia comes from, am I communicating this in a way that will land for the person? And so I'm al almost always thinking about my messaging in terms of how to encapsulate something so it's most effective for a PM or most effective for an engineer or most effective for a fellow designer. So no, absolutely. I, I I do worry how I come off when I'm trying to communicate things, but you know, for me, I'm just curious. Like, why is that the case? I mean, what, it kind of sounds silly that you know, in this modern day age, we have so many communication tools, even organizational processes. We've really kind of improved over the years of you know humanity running businesses. Why is it that communication is the first thing you think of when you think of challenges for cross team collaboration? I think the the funny thing about communication and cross-team collaboration, and it, it's almost interesting, John, that you mentioned you had a colleague who was spending an hour per person in the meeting, is, and Tarek, that pressure you feel, is communication should be natural. It should. It's like what we're put here to do is, I don't know, talk to one another and engage with one another. Um, but when you're communicating in such a sensitive, high-velocity environment uh, like tech, sometimes you need to be a little bit more deliberate. So I feel like the pressure is really dialed up when you're, when you're working cross team because every interaction is, you know, has double the impact is it turns out to be a really, really big thing. So you need to be on your toes communicating the right thing to the right people at the right time. 
Um, and sometimes, and almost all the time, that's the opposite direction that we tend to go with like our day-to-day communication, right? Like when I'm communicating with uh, my fiance, I don't think, I don't plan for an hour to tell her about my day, right? It's like that natural communication. But when you're not even, you know, folks on my team, same thing goes, I can just kind of like riff and, and kind of have a good conversation with them. But when you're having that that cross-team meeting and all that cross-team collaboration, it, it starts to become way more stressful. Um, and, and folks tend to put like a, a ton of stakes on it, I think. Yeah. One thing that comes to mind is Amy Edmondson in, in a TED talk about kind of building high-performance teams goes into this idea of a professional culture clash. And in her example, you know, she actually has this example where, you know, lawyers are attempting to work with minors, are attempting to work with biologists on this particular problem. And, you know, despite best efforts, it, it just it's just so difficult to get through to people. And, you know, she discusses how hard it was for this group of people to you know, bridge that professional culture clash and how leaders need to model it and how you need to practice and how you have to do it. And I think that it kind of cuts to the idea that our professional identity is really on the line. And and even if we don't fashion ourselves as a very defensive person, or even if the folks around us don't think they're very defensive, in these environments, it, it's just, it can be so messy and so sensitive sometimes that that it is, it, it can feel like walking on eggshells. So I think, you know, back to the Amy Edmondson ideas, um, how do you, how do you really truly bridge that professional culture clash to build trust? And, and I think that trust really is at the core of this until you build that trust, you're always going to feel like you're walking on egg, eggshells. John, in, in your scenario there, who in a, in a tech company do you think are the miners? Is it, and versus the doctors or whoever, is it, is it, you know, not literally, is it between designers and product managers and developers, or is it between one team and another? And I, it could be both, but I wonder where you guys see the breakdown most often. I think that the, maybe that's really cuts to why this is really difficult. Cause I think it is both. Mm-hmm. Think of how many dimensions can, can be at play in, in a company like, you can have sort of levels in the hierarchy. You can have different teams. You can have different professional, uh, you know, like functional groups. Um, and you can have different phases of product, right? So imagine like a team, uh, you know, trying to do something really emergent and new, and they're just all in the same room and they're, you know, trying something that hasn't been done yet. And then they try to go and communicate externally about their progress. And it's just like, yeah, we're kind of making progress. Now, this other group is working on a very, you know, button down, execution focused, you know, milestone focused thing. Even those groups are going to have a tough time communicating. So I think that the real challenge is you're not just talking a functional difference. You're talking, you know, generational, hierarchical uh, and, you know, product phase, I think that that's what makes this really hard. Yeah, I think I agree with that too. Another dimension I want to add is, you know, you spoke about trust, but really thinking of that in terms of the macro level and the micro level. There are people, you know, you will be working with for years that you build that kind of macro level of trust. And then there are forms of trust that just need to happen very real time, maybe micro levels of trust. 
uh, you can tell I'm from San Francisco because I'm using the word micro, right? Microclimate, microservices. But, you know, the perspective I'm saying it from is sometimes when you even start a conversation, right? You know, I, I read a book that wasn't written by any scientist or behavioral person, just written by some guy around, you know, I'll, I'll post this to the links. It's called, um, you know, I Hear You. And the idea of the book is just when you start conversations about validating that person's uh, you know, frame of reference, not necessarily validating what they're saying, but saying, you know, little things like, yeah, you have a right to feel that way. Or yeah, if I were in your shoes, I could see why I would feel that, you know, I'm not going to describe the entire book, but they talk about this idea of kind of building that micro trust before you even start sharing something or you start your communication so that the other person knows to, you know, let their guard down and have a productive conversation. And again, there's been hundreds of business books, uh, you know, uh, crucial conversations comes to mind where, you know, how you even start that conversation can build trust as well. So, so in addition to the things you said, John, I think there's micro moments of it that happen hundreds of times a day. And then there's these macro moments that are really relevant to relationships and processes. Dylan, when you're thinking about communicating kind of what, what your team is working on or challenges you have, you know, what intuition traps are there that, that you find yourself having to battle? Like, what are you tempted to do that you find yourself catching? Like, oh, may, maybe I shouldn't do that. Back to your point about actually feeling confident about the communication earlier, it, it's almost like communication is a really sensitive thing and you don't want to overburden somebody with communication. So I think the and, and we're all so zeroed in on our product. We're all so zeroed in on what we're doing. Um, so it, it makes it really difficult to zoom out and see across the org that there is a ton of other stuff going on. So I think the first instinct that a lot of us have is to communicate with anyone who may matter um, and really, really put a lot of deliberate thought into those types of communications, whether they be emails or slacks that are extremely well written with emojis and you know, italicizing and bold and threads and links and everything there. I think we need to naturally, or we tend to naturally lean into that sort of like everything I'm doing is at the center of the universe. However, on the flip side of that, you need to consider your audience and whether your audience be another team or leadership or the entire company, you need to consider that a lot of times these folks don't have that expectation of you, nor do they have that that type of time to be able to consume this from every constituent left to right. So I think the natural temptation or the intuition trap to avoid there is just like A, spending way too much time crafting the perfect message. Um, uh, one tendency I tend to lean on is if folks are looking for detail, they'll come ask. Uh, and the second thing there is just over communicating with everybody, right? Like you don't need to be CCing everybody on every project. You can kind of like make it ad hoc to the project at hand. Tarek, how about, how about you? Like what traps have, do you find yourself falling in repeatedly? I think as a designer, you're in the zone when you're designing something, you're kind of managing all these uh, assumptions, all these parts that, you know, you're planning to focus on later, you know, and, and your design always has some essence it's trying to mock out or materialize. And so one of the biggest traps I fall into is not asking people when I'm trying to communicate a design, the type of feedback I want from them. Because to me, it's so obvious what I'm working on. And when you build those relationships over time, you kind of understand when somebody 
um, you know, they, there's a micro interaction. They might not talk about all the states, but they're, you know, really asking for feedback around maybe layout or information hierarchy. You build that relationship over time that you know this person will fill in, fill in the blanks. But I always fall into that trap of, you know, not realizing that somebody's coming from a different frame of reference and they're giving you that feedback from there. Like they can't unsee how they process your design. And so sometimes it requires extra work to actually hide parts of the UX or, you know, only cut out certain parts of it to get that feedback you need to take that next step. Is, is that relevant to kind of what, what you meant? Yeah, I think that's an amazing example. I mean, it seems like that the intuition trap is, uh, you know, while I've got you here, yeah, just take a look at it. You know, I, I, I just need your feedback. And then... It, and then, you know, the, the right approach is like, I actually kind of, I need to make this decision. And so feedback along these lines would be really helpful to me. It brings up an example, just in the last two days, someone internally wrote me an email that said, uh, you know, we're doing all these workshops. Um, what do you guys think? And it was, it was hard because I was like, am I being asked to judge the content of the workshops or that we're picking these four or the seek, you know, what, what are we, what, what do you need from me? Which was really funny because I, I, I probably fell into another trap because I very quickly jotted off an email back, like what specific feedback do you need? Period. Thanks. And now in retrospect, like I fell into, you know, they fell into a trap of not asking for specific feedback, but I fell into the trap of like, kind of alienating myself in terms of how I was involved. Whereas, you know, I could have said something like, wow, that's an interesting list. I'm excited we're doing that. You know, I have a couple ideas. They might be around like which workshops we're doing or the specific content. Happy to answer any questions. So like that's my intuition trap and their intuition trap joined together probably created like a dysfunctional bit of communication. Um, so I think that these things kind of build on each other, unfortunately. Totally. Totally. And I think, um, you know, we, you know, as a designer, as a PM, you're always talking about building for end outcomes, not just building features. Right. And I think the same applies for communication and that's so easy to forget. You know, I, I remember for me, there was a pivotal moment when I was just working at my desk. Amplitude was much smaller. I think we were only 40 people at the time. And there was this sales leader talking to this AE and coaching this, sorry, AE is account executive. So there's a sales leader talking to this account executive who was trying to close a deal. And, you know, he was going back and forth about different strategies. And the sales leader just stopped and said, you know, what do you want? What do you want from this? And to me, I thought that was such a surprising question because, I mean, it's kind of obvious what they want. They want to close the deal. But that simple rephrasing made the AE saying, you know what, I want this person as a customer so we can have them as a long-term relationship. So all these details should be in service to that, right? Like he, he didn't say those exact words, but that that's what he was entailing. And so I've now used that. I, I learned from that moment and I now use that when I talk to junior designers. And so there'll be a situation where maybe a designer feels like, you know, they didn't get credit for something. And when I talk to them, I say, you know, what do you want from this? Let's say the person did give you credit. Is there still something else you would need? And sometimes you discover it's not the credit they want. It's more that they want to be involved in the process as a stakeholder to make you know, some sort of decision. And so a lot of it to me goes back to kind of not just asking, hey, what type of feedback am I looking for? 
But the flip side of it of like, what will that feedback accomplish? What are you really trying to get to? You know, Dylan, as a PM on the other side of it, um, do you find that exists with designers or with other people on your team? It really does. I'm having an actually very reflective moment right now about the comms I've sent over the last, I don't know, year, six months, day, two days, and, and all of the ones I've received. I think one of the classic things that happen, or like, a, I think a thing that never happens is folks don't lead with why an, a certain individual is being targeted, right? Like if I receive an email from a designer about how research is going, on something that I'm either directly or tangentially involved in, it's never led with why I am a person receiving that email. It, and as a result, it often feels like sharing just for the sake of sharing. I think in general, what folks need to start doing, and, and Slack has probably amplified this problem, is you know leading with why, why is this channel the place where this is being broadcasted? What types of feedback are you looking for on a design, on a spec, uh, on a beta even. We are so quick to lead with that with our customers. When we release a beta, we tell them exactly what they're looking for their input on, but we never consider that in communication. At least that's not something that I see considered you know, in our org or, or I've ever even considered personally. So what I'm kind of hearing here and based off of what you guys are saying is consider your communication like your own mini product right? Like consider it like you need to receive feedback from others. You're essentially workshopping an idea that is either good or bad uh, and you need validation on that and that you can always iterate from there. I think that's a, a classic trap that it's definitely worthwhile to avoid falling into. And so what I find is so funny about Slack is that Slack is like the, there must be like a Slack version of Conway's law that your organization begins to look like how you arrange your Slack channels and then vice versa and like reverse Conway's law. It's funny actually saying that because one thing in Slack, and maybe this relates to the human condition in general, is that people are afraid of too many channels. You know, they'll say something like, oh my God, we have too many channels. I can't keep up, you know, with all that. And then, you know, the channels get overloaded with all sorts of information in those channels and they can't keep up with it when it's in one channel anyway. So the funny part about it is the the core problem is that there's a crap load of information we need to process every single day as part of doing knowledge work and that Slack is just going to merely represent that no matter whether we like it or not. So anyway, a little bit about Slack there, but I think it's kind of funny how how a lot of these issues just manifest in the tools we use as well. We started to, at HubSpot, almost try to create channels on specific cross-team projects. And we've almost gone overboard, uh, which is fascinating. Uh, we, we It worked a few times, and I think there was a tech talk or something on why channels should be used for every project. And now there's like, you know, red button changing to blue button channel. And <laughs> it's just gotten so overboard. Uh, and I think folks have just uh, maybe over-indexed on that. One thing that I was reminded of when we were talking before, and it's kind of a personal story, but I think it, it, it relates to this, is that I got caught in a loop in the past when I would try to communicate between being clear about what my own needs were in a situation, and then what I thought like the broader question uh, happened to be, or you know what sh people should try to do, or whatever. And I think that that's actually a really kind of relating back to this idea of like, what do you need out of it? 
is a really important point. So what I see with a lot of product managers is that they feel stuck between what they're told to do in terms of be a facilitator and to like help the team and then actually having their own needs as a human being. <laughs> and so this gets reflected in things like retrospectives that the product manager is somehow thrown into trying to facilitate. And so that they're sitting there kind of trying to facilitate, but they can't contain their own anxiety about the situation and say like, hey, you all, I, I have a need to, felt, to feel heard in these situations, or I, I have a need to feel like I can trust you in this situation. And so the trap that I would fall into is that I would talk about the broader sort of systemic issue, but then not really relate it to what I need or like my perspective on it. And so I think that that's one thing that I see with with PMs is having to navigate their own individual needs versus what they are kind of programmed to do from a facilitation standpoint or, you know, a kind of unbiased communication standpoint. And I don't think there's any easy answer to that. It's just a really, really hard problem. Yeah, absolutely. And it'll always be a hard problem and that's okay. But if you have the right models in mind, maybe you can catch a few of the scenarios where you fall into that trap. You know, Dylan, I want to try a test here. This is an analogy I've used with other, you know, junior designers to explain them what a good research question is and what's not. Um, that's a whole other question of should designers do their own research, but that, that, that's for a different day. Um, and so the analogy I use to kind of help people just get into that mind is imagine you walked into an elevator and there was somebody else there, right? And you just approached the stranger and you said, hey, what don't you like about my pants? And in a world where that's, let's say, not weird or creepy and they, you know, they answer honestly, they would think of things based on how you phrase the question that they don't like about your pants. When in reality, they might have never thought of it or it might have not affected their workflow. It might have not been irrelevant to them whatsoever. But when you're asking that question and that person is in a moment where you know, they want to reply, they'll come up with things that may not even be relevant. And so I use that analogy with junior designers. And once they think of that story, I've heard that's pretty helpful for them to think about, well, are my questions kind of like that? Am I just asking people for feedback? Um, and, and now I'm realizing this re relates to even getting feedback on your work as opposed to getting feedback on your product or the, act or the actual use cases. Is that relevant for you, Dylan? And if it's not, you know, where, where does it miss the mark? I think that's super relevant. It all comes down to framing there because you could run that question in 10 different scenarios. It, what do you like about my pants? Uh, mm -hmm. It's like uh, just it's a, another version of the question, which also isn't very good. Uh, you can ask a really open box question that doesn't really provide any sort of like grounds for feedback. And that is, hi, I have pants. And that's not really soliciting any sort of feedback. I think the better question there is, you know, what do you think about the hem on my pants? Or what do you think about these shiny blue buttons on my pants? I think those are the types of questions we should be asking as product managers and designers. So I think there's a lot of weight to that, that analogy you're, that you're working with there. One um, exercise that I have gotten kind of turned on to is this idea of cue storming, which is question storming. And what's really interesting about cue storming is the goal is to actually frame successively through, through brainstorming cycles and then, you know, divergence and convergence, really powerful questions. 
And what's fascinating about this is that I think that, you know, as, as product managers, especially and designers too, you're sort of told to like have the answer. And when, and, and I'm thinking about Tarek's kind of framing there, like when you're told to have the answer, you know, you guide a lot of your activities towards having that answer. And when you do Q-storming exercises, the goal is to frame these powerful questions that inspire reflection, that kind of cut to the heart of the issue that are un, not leading, like they don't lead you down one path in particular. Uh, and they're really powerful in terms of like you could... You could almost do, you know, a strategy session and just frame your company questions instead of having, you know, your strategic answers and get the exact same result by having those powerful questions. So when I do these activities, one thing I'm always blown away by is that like our desire is to have answers all the time. And yet like a really powerful question can inspire a team to so much more alignment than necessarily a really powerful solution. And that, that kind of like changed my perspective on it. John, I wanted to ask you, cause you know, I, I don't like getting into the specific techniques and different, uh, you know, workshops, things you can run, but how do you run a Q brainstorming? Cause the theory of it sounds interesting. I'm just wondering, are people just shouting questions in no, a room? No, like, you actually you... need to, you need, it, there's a little bit of um, facilitation involved. You need a powerful invitation for the meeting. So you kind of, you, you at least sort of set the landscape for the questions. And then what you do is you actually start, there's many different approaches, but the approach I use is we then start discussions on what makes a powerful question, which in a sense kind of creates a little checklist for the team. Like they'll know when they've really have a powerful question, when it's, you know, not leading, when it inspires creativity, you know, when you do those things. And then you do like kind of the normal divergence convergence cycles, you know, individual pairing groups of four, continuing to refine, then you break off into groups to refine the questions you have. And, you know, the end result when, you know, maybe it would be helpful to have an example and I'll, I'll try to riff one, you know, for the podcast, but I could certainly, you know, follow up with more uh, in the links, but, you know, some of the questions are very open-ended, like, you know, how do we want to be in this situation such that we can balance our need for predictability with our need to be creative, right? So like, that seems kind of like, I don't know, that's a weird question, but it's like, how do we, the group of people here want to be? So it describes like how you actually want to act in a way that balances these two particular needs that the team has. And like, that's an, ex that sounds kind of goofy, but like, that's actually a pretty powerful question for people to ponder. And, you know, an example of a strategic question, you know, let's say that you're you know based in South America and you know, you want to expand all around Central America and you want to do these things. The obvious answer is we need to expand internationally. Well, the real question is how can we expand internationally without losing the essence of what we are as a company while also respecting the local traditions. So those are just examples. That's one framing, which is like the, how can we do this while balancing, but there's many variations. That's really fascinating, John. Would you, you know, tying that back to communication and cross-team, would you ever lead with, you know, an email on a, on a project update with some sort of existential question like that? Uh, and, then, <laughs> and then use the the update to help answer it, perhaps? Or like, well, I, gave, I, mean, I, gave, I, gave I gave you pretty existential questions, but, you know, let's say something much more concrete, you know, could be something like, um, 
you know, how do how how might we balance the affordances on this page to to you know both engage users but also not frustrate them? Or, you know, so like you could you know, a PM coming up with that question could be the most powerful part of the communication to start with. You know, it could be like the team brain, you know, you might say in the email, like the team brainstormed and we can really, we can really boil down what we're doing now to this central question blank. And so, you know, that could be high level and existential, or it could be pretty specific. Um, but you know, don't lead and make it powerful and inspire creativity with the question. But you know, this, this, I think this goes to the theme of like, I think this goes to the theme of in general, like communication doesn't always need to be about statuses and updates and where we're at. If you're going to be inviting people into a conversation, you should often consider the really deeply the questions you're asking to invite them into the conversation. It turns out everything in life is just an improv game. <laughs> do you do improv, Tarek? I don't, but you know, when you talk about these analogies, when you talk about these workshops, they almost kind of feel like, you know, these little games or things you have to do to get people to really just open up and get to the root. So, and also to, to inspire action. I think that, right. like you, you want people to start a habit that they're going to try to, to try to continue. I, I don't know, like uh, Dylan, if at HubSpot you've you've done like coaching or training in terms of communication, but has anything stuck in terms of things people have shared internally about that have kind of built up momentum as practices? Yeah, that's a great question, John. I, I think when I'm working with uh, associate PMs or, or newer PMs, the the number one thing that we try to kind of set forth when it comes to communication is what you mentioned earlier is almost just putting yourself in, in that person's shoes. But the way that we do that is almost at the team level. Uh, and I always recommend to start a, a mega cross-team project with a happy hour and not a kickoff meeting. And it seems <laughs> expensive and it seems extreme, but it is the number one way to get two teams to actually see through each other's perspectives to kind of maintain and like earn that social trust and that social capital um, so that they feel comfortable asking those questions that you mentioned, right? Like I wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable asking somebody who I had only transacted with over Slack this existential type question. So it's almost like you need to set yourself up for that level of, um, you know, it's almost like you need to set yourself up for that level of communication. Um, and the, the way that I always recommend that we do that and, and we try to do this with all of our, our big projects is through just raw socialization. I, I think that's a huge, huge uh, momentum builder in, in any cross-team relationship. Kind of brings up the topic too of, of if you don't have that trust, everyone can relate to that idea of being, you know, in a meeting for one hour and then someone's like, okay, action items, we all agree, right? And everyone's nodding their head mm -hmm. and, and no one really does. And, and yet when I've done and facilitated offsites, I, I remember I facilitated an offsite where it was four days of eight hours a day and 32 hours straight of like messy sense making just to get to a point where they were actually talking the same language. And when I say that, people say, we must have been facilitating wrong or it must have been a really dysfunctional company. But but now having dealt more with sort of like C-level people and VPs and things, I am always amazed how you can get a group of them together in a room. And if you individually brainstorm some topic, 
like, what do we think about this? And you compare the notes, they aren't actually talking the same language. So I think that if you build that kind of social, um, those social connections, it can give people the trust and also the stamina to push through these, these long extended sense-making exercises. Cause if, if you just try to converge very quickly and agree, you're probably not really agreeing. But the reality is that it's just so hard um, and it just takes that much work. You know, we're kind of running low on time, but but I'm really interested, Dylan. We talked about a lot of things. Um, any anything stand out? Any final thoughts? Anything anything that you personally are going to try to you know take with you? Um, what's on your mind? Yeah, this was a really interesting conversation. Uh, I'll, I'll take a lot of this with me, but the the things that mostly stood out to me here. Um, I mean, like you said, comms are hard. Uh, we're all wearing different shoes in a, in a tech environment and in product. Uh, so some of the most important things there are to, you know, lead with trust, uh, earn the trust of those around you and, and things like are kind of naturally going to, to be a little bit better. Uh, I took particular interest in, in leading with the why, uh, and almost asking what you're looking for when you're, when you're either sending out requests or comms or anything, just being hyper-specific of your audience because we're all just as busy. Uh, so actually being explicit about what you're looking for. Um, and, and really to your last point, kicking off, uh, and starting together, being on the same page before things get messy, uh, before things get lost in translation, being on that true mutual agreement, no matter how hard it gets, uh, makes everything else pretty easy. One thing that struck me, the most meaningful thing, uh, for me was when you mentioned Dylan, you said that how we communicate is like a product as well. So if you think, you know, we often think of the product as just the thing that we ship to customers, but how your team communicates will have a really big influence on what you end up delivering to customers and, and how you, you kind of make their lives better. So I think, you know, we tend to short thrift this stuff, but it, it really is really important. So this brings us to the game. I, yeah, I, I, I think we have a good one for today to wrap this up, especially because I think there's a heavy topic. <laughs> I think we need a catharsis. I think we, I think we yeah. need something that will just, um, yeah, yeah. I would argue sharing failure. The other episode we did is less of a heavy topic than figuring out how to communicate. There, there's a lot of baggage there. <laughs> um, so we, we, we need something lighthearted. Um, I think one of you were suggesting this game where, you know, to make fun of how hard communicating is we would go in a lightning round and each share kind of the worst, most passive aggressive comment someone has made to us. Uh, we go one by one with no comment on the, on the message or, or background on who says it. I think that should be implied. And then I don't know how many rounds we can get through. I, maybe, maybe if we mean that rounds. it can be slightly annoying too. Like it can just be a trigger. Like if sure. it's the worst, that might yeah. like really raise the bar and our tension level and we would need to give multiple right. trigger warnings. But like, yeah, it could be the worst, but it could also just be, um, you know, moderately triggering. And then we'll just keep going until our, our like we're so anxious that we have to stop the episode. <laughs> I, I like that. I like that. I think sometimes you need... Uh, I think sometimes humor about things that are painful can be comforting. Okay. Could, could I offer a, a, a vote to expand this just a bit sure. beyond sure. things that people say to also things that people can do? Yeah. Okay. 
Got it. Got yep. it. Got it. That's okay. good. That's going to give us options as we're it working could through. Keep it. the game going a bit longer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and may, maybe even and I would the the final thing also self uh, self effacing is good. Like if it's something that you've done that's annoying, that's good too. So not just like making fun of other people, you know. Like, I mean, then the game would go on for yeah. Right. If, if it's, okay, <laughs> for me at least. All right. Okay. So, so we'll do the order. John, Tark, Dylan, John, Tark, Dylan. Sound good? Okay. I'm in. Okay. And it has to be lightning round. So no more than 20 seconds or 10 seconds. seconds. Okay. All right. Got it. Between each comment as well. Okay. I'll start. So, so John, I, I, I really would prefer if, if you brought solutions, not problems. I really like how this looks, but Oh, that was a full thing. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was. Oh, man. Because anything after that comment will be triggering to me. Have you tried? Oh, that's good. That's good. That's a good one. Um, yeah, okay. Could you just trim this down to one slide? How can we launch this without that feature, but still have it done by Friday? <laughs> How many customers have you talked to about this? <laughs> oh, oh my god, that's good. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm really, I'm really looking for something that pops a little more. <laughs> that was terrible. That one. That, there's real pain in that one. Okay. I mean, can we just do what Slack does here? <laughs> <laughs> can we just do what Google Docs does here? Um, it, oh, oh, I had one. Um, you know, if we could just do all of these things, but just with one product, we'd be okay. Have you ever built something like this before? Hey, I, I mean no offense by this, but... Oh. That's awesome. Um, I'm going to switch over, over to behaviors. Uh, when, when someone just leaves the Google Doc open all of the time and you never know if they're <laughs> looking or not. Oh, oh, here's one. When they just leave a Slack channel, like after something sensitive has been said. Oh. Uh, for me, it's uh, somebody does like, I call it the chicken pox um, envision prototype feedback where you go to your prototype and there's like a pink dot everywhere and it's like one person. That, that, that's when you know they, they haven't even agreed with the one pager. <laughs> so they're all letting it out. I am so guilty of that, Tari. Uh, no, I'm going to be it, so it, self-conscious about my envision <laughs> feedback. No, it's it's okay sometimes. It's okay, but there's sometimes where somebody's just you can tell, uh, you know, if if they just kind of screamed in a room alone together, you know, it would be much better than them <laughs> laying it on the envision. Sometimes it's okay where you actually do need that level of feedback, but you can tell when the ratio is like one person making ninety comments and one per and everyone else making one or two that <laughs> there was a there was something missing there. I would have to say like all the ones related to like MVP bait and switch stuff like, oh, we'll just monitor that or maybe we'll just check back in with support or 
you know, why don't we just let that put that one in the oven for a little bit? Okay, I've got one final one, and maybe we wrap this up. Everyone (laughs) says their final one. This could go on for some time. I actually think this is a great question to ask, but when it's asked at the wrong time, it can be the worst thing to hear, which is, are we working on the most impactful thing? That is a good one. Oh, that's good. Because it's so contextual, right? Like that might be the perfect yes. thing, but then it's kind of like, yeah, got it. That's a good one. Dylan. All right. My final one is is along those lines of Tarek's is, what if we didn't do this? Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, like a good, like a good question. And then it's kind of really, really annoying at the wrong time. That's good. Yeah. Um, when you're starting something, that's a great question. And yes. Like, After like, the seventh it? meeting, it is not. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Something, something like, could you just give me a couple bullets on that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, Dylan, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I think we all really connected. I mean, I think that shows in how long we've spoken. <laughs> um, and so you know, I, I, I think we're going to leave this episode kind of as long as it becomes because there's a lot of great stuff in here. I'd love to hear from Twitter, you know, people who feel the episode was too long or maybe too short, but I think there's a lot of great stuff here. And this is a conversation we absolutely should, should continue and, and talk about in, in different angles. Have it with your team. I mean, if anything, right, like you can share this podcast a little bit and then you, you might find that people are, um, you might find that people are uh, more open to talking about this stuff if you kind of make some fun of it. Totally. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. And um, yeah, hit us on Twitter if you have some feedback and uh, until next time.